You're listening to Connecting the Universe from Mike Ricksecker and ConnectedUniversePortal.com. Welcome, everybody, to Connecting the Universe. I'm author and researcher Mike Ricksecker, back with you with another fantastic interactive class, Matrix of Consciousness. Yes, we're venturing back into the world of our consciousness. And what does it have to do with the matrix? What do we mean by Matrix of Consciousness? Well, we're going to get into that here uh, very, very soon. That is our goal for this evening. But real quick, for those listening to the podcast version later, please join us every Wednesday night at 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern time for the full Connecting the Universe experience on ConnectedUniversePortal.com. There's a 30-day free trial, which gives you access to weekly Connecting the Universe interactive class, which is what this is. Sneak peek and behind-the-scenes videos, monthly Q&A videos, exclusive articles, insider travel blogs, including Ancient Egypt, the American Southwest, and Ireland. More of that will be coming soon as well because there are be going to be some updates I'm putting out there uh, for Egypt. Plus, we're going back to Egypt in February. So that's going to be amazing. All of this and more at ConnectedUniversePortal.com. That's for our listeners out at the podcast and syndicated shows like Onyx Network, KPNL, and KGRA. So real quick for our members, subscribers, it's monthly Q&A time. Yep. Um, I did make that post down in the Facebook group and also the uh, the public group as well, uh, the, or the public page. So taking your questions now, this is for the November Q&A. This is the last day of November. Uh, we covered a lot here over the past month on triangle areas of the world. We did an entire class on the Alaska Triangle and one on many of the others, such as Bermuda, Bridgewater, uh, all, all those, even Ireland. Uh, plus, we covered the connections between Egypt and Atlantis. So any questions you have on those, you can toss them down in here. You can toss them on the post that's there within the group or on the page. There's also a post in the uh, community group out on ConnectedUniversePortal.com. Or since that sent an email, you can respond to the email, message me directly. There's a lot of ways you can go ahead and get in your questions for the monthly Q&A. But speaking of questions, this is our class question for the evening. That is, what do you think happens to your consciousness when you pass away? So Jennifer LeBay commented, you achieve unity consciousness. No body, no boundaries, just one vibration with all of the universe. Some are lucky enough to achieve this in life. The rest have to wait. I'm kind of curious, Jen, as to uh, if, if that's something with your transcendental meditation uh, classes and retreats, if if that's 
what they actually teach there. I'd be interested to know. Uh, also, we had a question or a comment come in from Instagram. Luciferian King said, I think the brain is like a receiver for your consciousness. It just goes back to the collective consciousness of the universe, quote unquote God, or it's transferred to another vessel on earth or elsewhere. That or you become one with something slash everything and become all pervasive and omnipotent. So um, we'll be exploring some of those different concepts here this evening as we dive deep into this particular topic. So I see a lot of people have joined. We have, uh, of course, uh, Jen is down there. Katie McVeigh is in the house. Great to see you, Katie. And there's Tom McNicholas. Great to see you, my friend. And there's Sarah Youssef. Uh, we have a Facebook user. Uh, just to let you know, this is going to be a change for, I don't know if it's going to be next week or uh, when we start off the new year. I really want to make it next week. But uh, our platform here has added webinars. Not the Connected Universe Portal site, which I would love for it to be out there. They're actually working on that. But where I do the live streaming from here. Uh, and so what I'm looking to do for next week, or like I said, maybe to start the, the new year, is to have everybody sign into there so um, we don't have Facebook user, because I have no idea who that is. But with a webinar platform, then I'd be able to know who everybody is. Uh, but I see the wave, so waving back. And Jen says, yes, it is a uh, transcendental meditation thing. Awesome. Okay. So let's go ahead and dive into this, because this is really like the age-old question of, you know, where do we go when we die? Uh, humanity's been trying to answer that question for a long, long time. So a number of people who are watching this this evening come from the background of paranormal investigations and, and are paranormal investigators. And in that type of scenario, and trying to figure out, you know, what you're interacting with, uh, when you encounter some sort of ghost or spirit. Some differentiate that a ghost is energy that is earthbound, kind of trapped here on earth. Uh, sometimes knowingly, sometimes it knows it's stuck here. Sometimes unknowingly, it doesn't even know that it has passed away. It's going on, you know, that person's going on living their lives. While a spirit is energy that has passed on to the other side. So again, that's... That's how some people portray it as. Um, I guess the way I look at it is there is a little bit of a separation there because you can have something like a residual haunt or what have you while you have a spirit that is, to me, somebody that, like an intelligent haunt, that sort of thing. Uh, but the idea that it you know goes off somewhere and comes back in I don't know. When it comes back in, a lot of times it's experienced as a ghost. So is it one of those that a spirit can be a ghost at times, but a ghost can not be a spirit? But then what is that energy of the ghost? I, a lot of times I think they're just one and the same thing. And we're just kind of putting these definitions on it, depending on where they're standing in the universe. Uh, you know, I've had, um, you know, when somebody has passed over to the other side, like, uh, I, I use this example a lot. My grandfather, when he passed away, he stuck around here for a while, visiting a lot of the different family members. Uh, I had interactions with him. I know other family members did as well. But then when my grandmother passed away a few years later, those visitations stopped. So it was kind of assumed that they went on to somewhere else. 
where was that? That's what we're going to get into uh, this evening, some of those different ideas. But you know, I did have kind of a one-off visitation from them in a dream, which you know I believe was was a legitimate visitation based on what happened in the dream, the message that was sent, all of these different things. And so was it, if it was kind of quote unquote, the other side, did they get, I don't know, a hall pass to come down here for, you know, for a few minutes to, to interact with me, you know, so we don't really know how all of that works. We have a lot of different theories. And so that's what we're going to, to be working with. So it's almost like you know, we'll, we will talk a little bit about the matrix. So it's almost kind of like jacking in and out of the matrix. Did they jack back into the matrix to, to give me a message? So I have a great uh, quote here. We've, uh, we've used it before in class from Nassim Harriman, who does a lot of this type of, of research uh, with interconnections with the universe. He, he likes fractals. Um, he, he does a lot with um, you know, different deeper topics of uh, of this type of research. So he says, looking for consciousness in the brain is like looking inside a radio for the announcer. If the brain is the radio's receiver, then the heart is the dial tuning the radio to the frequency of your choice. So it's the idea that your consciousness is essentially being sent from somewhere else is being broadcast from somewhere else. And the body is picking that up as a receiver. And you can look at it as like an, an avatar type of a thing where this is the avatar. This is what we are functioning within, but the actual consciousness itself is being broadcast from somewhere else. Not saying that is exactly the way it is, but it's an idea and we will go down that rabbit hole. We have some other uh, quotes here. I'm going to throw out there from uh, Greg Braden, and we have talked about this before too. So we will get into uh, like the idea of a simulation, which is why this is matrix of consciousness. Um, and we've talked about some of this stuff before here too in, in other classes. So in uh, season two of Missing Links, uh, he he dove down into this subject of he called it the the divine matrix. Um, we can call it whatever we want. But the idea that we're in a simulation, I use some of these quotes for my book, A Walk in the Shadows. So in his quotes, uh, first, just kind of define, defining a simulation. This is from the episode, Evidence of Our Simulated Reality. He says, a simulation is an experience that allows us to immerse ourselves in an unfamiliar environment first and second, it allows us to master the parameters of that environment in a relatively safe way while minimizing the risk of injury to ourselves or to one another. So first of all, I will say this. If we are in some sort of simulation, I don't necessarily believe that it's a computer as in the technology that we have at our disposal right now. Um, when we get into our science fiction, and the idea of simulations there, we've generally done that from the idea of a computer because that is, you know, the, the epitome of our technology today. 100, 200 years from now, it might be some other form of technology that we would say, 
oh, this is what would be running the simulation. This is, you know, the the peak of technology. And it's funny how we go through these cycles. Um, and I forget who said it like 100 years ago. Um, it might have been even longer, like 120 years ago, where they made the comment that uh, it was some scientists that, uh, you know, science has reached the the peak of its evolution. And we're just, you know, kind of tweak things along the side. And that'll be it that we've we've really achieved it as a you know as a civilization. And of course, how far have we come from you know in the last hundred to 120 years? Yeah. Uh, so what we think we know now is amazing. Now we're just scratching the surface. In any case, we'll dive down into this uh, a little bit deeper. So uh, a little bit more from from Greg here. He says the Sanskrit word maya actually means illusion this is the fundamental concept in the hindu tradition they tell us that it is under the illusion under maya's influence that the soul identifies with the body to the point where we cannot tell ourselves as a separate or as separate from the illusion of this physical world under maya's influence we get lost in the body's expression of ego and fear sex race the color of our skin our belief systems under the illusion of Maya. In those same traditions, the idea of enlightenment means to escape the Maya, to escape the illusion. Christian traditions tell us something very, very similar. They tell us almost universally the world is temporary, that it is an illusion not to get stuck here, that we're here only briefly, and that we are preparing. They actually say we're preparing ourselves to live in another world. This parallels the ideas of the simulation almost to a T. So, and I have talked about this before where you know, our world religions really reflect the idea of that we are in a simulation without using the word simulation. You know, because again, you know, our ancient cultures and religions, um, when these things were you know, first formulated, they had no idea about Kind of quote unquote simulation from a technological viewpoint of a computer. They knew temporary world, there's some sort of illusion, there's more dimensions, there's other planes of existence, uh, there are other states of consciousness, you know, entering into altered states of consciousness. That's why, um, you know, they came up with, you know, things like ayahuasca. That's why they came up with things like the stone circles, uh, so that they could experience these different. Uh, states of being, states of consciousness, and sometimes, um, you know, there was astral projection involved. Sometimes these things, you know, we've talked about portals and stargates and things like that. You know, was it a physical portal or was it a portal or stargate for the consciousness to go through? You know, you can you can debate that out. So uh, Tom saying, my consciousness will be like sticky tape and stick around from person to person. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. So you're going to follow everybody around. Uh, that's awesome. And there's uh, there's Mary. Good to see you, Mary. So being in the simulation, if that's what you want to call it, being in this world, in this universe, uh, we are trapped, however, in this physical body. With our consciousness, you know, where is that? Um, and, and that's also debated as well, you know. How does our body work with connecting to the universe 
if our consciousness, if it's being transmitted to us. Um, let's start with the, the physicality of the body. And we're going to get into the connection between the brain and the heart. So we have talked a little bit about brain-heart connection before, that there are 40,000 sensory neurites in the heart. And this is that term, the little brain in the heart. Uh, this is from the Cleveland Clinic uh, Journal of Medicine, March 2007, a citation from that um, Dr. Uh, J. Andrew Armour. He's a pioneer in this field. He's taken extensive research and introduced the concept of the intrinsic cardiac network as a functional heart brain. His work demonstrated a complex intrinsic nervous system in the heart that is deemed sufficiently sophisticated to qualify as a quote-unquote little brain in its own right. The complexity of the neurocircuitry in the heart allows independent action separate from the cranial brain. So, okay, that's a, that's a lot of big words. But essentially what that means is, you know, the whole concept, or if I could speak, the whole concept of thinking with your heart, right? Um, you know, get all these different, you know, ideas in your, you know, okay, let's just take a situation. You get all these different ideas in your, in your brain about how to, um, do I want to make this choice? Do I want to that, make that choice? You know, if I go down this path, what's it going to mean? If I go down that path, what's going to happen? You know, you start to overanalyze. And then somebody tells you, slow down a second. What does your heart tell you? And so it's this idea. And, and, you know, some people will say, okay, well, you know, there's an actual physical reaction like that. Um, you know, the way the, the muscle of the heart works and you kind of feel that flutter or whatever. But there's something intrinsic about the heart where you have that connection back to the brain. You have these neurites within the heart that connect back to your mind to make those decisions based on what you're feeling in here. And so... You know, that's something that's kind of always been with us since, you know, time immemorial. The, um, you know, the ancients even knew, you know, thinking with the heart. They, there are you know, many, many cultures that believed that, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't your brain that controlled the body. It was your heart that controlled the body. And that's because so much of their decision making, making was based on, you know, what they felt in the heart. That's because there are those neurites there that are in the heart. So you have that connection between the, the mind and the body. Okay, so you have your consciousness within your body. You have your brain and your heart both making decisions for you. Now, what's interesting, and we covered this a bit in um, Supernatural DNA, when you have these organ transplants, and all of a sudden you have somebody else's DNA within your body. So people start having cravings or remembering different things that they shouldn't. And it seems like the ones that have the heart transplants seem to have this even more so. Again, um, you know, not only are you receiving somebody else's DNA through the organ itself, but if you're getting the heart transplant, you're also getting those neurites. So those are going to have some stored memory within there, both in the DNA 
and within the neurites. So a couple of examples. Uh, and these are these are interesting. So Claire Sylvia, a heart transplant recipient who received the organ from an 18-year-old male that died in a motorcycle accident, reported having a craving for beer and chicken nuggets. After the surgery, the heart transplant recipient also began to have recurring dreams about a man named Tim L. Upon searching the obituaries, Sylvia found out her donor's name was Tim and that he loved all of the food that she craved. In another case, an eight-year-old girl who received the heart of a murdered 10-year-old girl began having recurring vivid nightmares about the murder. Her mother arranged a consultation with a psychiatrist who, after several sessions, concluded that she was witnessing actual incidents. They decided to call the police who used the detailed descriptions of the murder, the time, the weapon, the place, the clothes he wore, what the little girl he killed had said to him, given by the little girl to find and convict the man in question. Absolutely fascinating. I see a couple of comments are coming in here. Uh, Connie's asking, who doesn't crave beer and chicken nuggets? Um, <laughs> good question. Uh, you'd be surprised, though, if you go like at an all salad diet there for a little while. And the first time you have something like a chicken nugget, you're like, mm, yeah, you actually start to not crave it. It's kind of interesting. Um, <laughs> so um, in Sarah, yes, it's basically saying that the, uh, the heart contains a basic neural net. Yeah, um, it does. Correct. So, so there is this idea that we talked about before, okay, with, with the DNA, that um, that's a case in which you're getting it from the organ. We've also talked before about receiving DNA from your ancestors, like can you have your ancestors' memories? And so we're inclined to know some different things that they may have as well that there's now recall we've talked about this before in other classes that the genetic marker has to be put in place before procreation so um if if we're to have some sort of vague memory of i don't know a uh, you know a, a model t that your you know great grandfather owned he would have had to have owned that Model T and established some sort of relationship with it, I guess. I mean, maybe even just owning it, you know, is enough before your grandfather or your grandmother would have been procreated by him and uh, your, your great-grandmother. So that has to be in place. But so many times... And this could be, you know, part of a past life thing, but there are many, many times uh, in which, you know, we arrive at a certain country or a, or a certain location. We have kind of that deja vu moment, or it almost feels like home to us. Now, again, it could be either, or it could be a reincarnation thing, or it could be this genetic marker that's been, that's been passed down. So it's some, it's something there that has been established within the consciousness, or and we'll get into how I think DNA plays into the consciousness here in a little bit. Um, but I wanted to um, I wanted to read this off. This is actually something I've written here recently for my upcoming book, Connecting the Universe. 
And so I don't know how many of you have been watching the um, the new series, Ancient Apocalypse by Graham Hancock. It's 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 been a widely received show on Netflix. It's been in the top 10 here for, for weeks. I think it reached as high as number two for, for shows on Netflix. Um, the mainstream, like traditional archaeologists and mainstream media have blasted him for this. This is stuff Graham's been talking about for 30 years. Uh, you know, he's he's written huge books on on the topic for a long, long time. He's done many television shows and things like that. Um, as a guest, this is his actual own show on a very popular streaming service, Netflix. And they've, they've blasted him once again for this. So in this piece of the book, um, I've kind of sounded off on this a little bit, but it plays into what we're talking about right now. So I wanted to, to go ahead and read it off. So um, from up the upcoming Connecting the Universe book from the chapter, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Despite the flailing pro... <laughs> Let me start again. Despite the flailing and protestations by traditional archaeologists and much of the mainstream media who came out in droves to decry the series, Ancient Apocalypse was a massive hit on Netflix, becoming a top five hit on a service subscribed to by hundreds of millions. Why is it so popular with so many experts crying foul? Hancock likes to say humans are a species with amnesia, that we've forgotten some important segment of our past. Perhaps the reason we're taken in by these ideas is that we're aware of that amnesia on a subconscious level, or... As Morpheus from The Matrix tells us, what you know you can't explain, but you feel it. You've felt it your entire life, that there's something wrong with the world. You don't know what it is, but it's there, like a splinter in your mind, driving you mad. We asked the question earlier, if we have our grandparents' memories, is there some distant memory written to, into our DNA of a global cataclysm? of a civilization far, far more ancient than previously acknowledged, that when we hear civilization can't be any older than traditional archaeology allows for, or there was no massive event that nearly wiped out humanity across the globe, that vague remnant of a memory pulls at the back of our minds. We may be a species with amnesia, as Hancock states, but I suggest there's a sliver of that event still tucked away within the recesses of our subconscious memories like a soft glow, embers of a dying fire. So basically what I'm saying here is that there, when, when it comes to these types of controversial topics, you could take, I don't know, the dating of the Sphinx. You could take you know, anything that we talk about with you know, like stone circles and what they were possibly used for and Stargates and portals, all of these things that, um, you know, we have some inkling of that may be true, but, you know, traditionalists will try to say, no, 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 it doesn't fit into our narrative or, you know, where's the, uh, you know, where are the, when it comes to ancient civilizations, uh, you know, where's the proof that there was, you know, civilization happening at that time? concerning the dating of the Sphinx. And, oh, there's Gobekli Tepe. That pops up. 
you know, things like that. There's something in the back of our mind that knows different things happened in the past. And I say in the mind, but um, it's in the consciousness, it's in the DNA, it's somewhere within us. There's a vague memory of it so that when we hear it, we're like, there's something to that. There is something there. I can't quite place my finger on it, which is basically what Morpheus is saying here. You don't know what it is, but it's there like a splinter in your mind driving you mad. And so that's what people like Hancock and others are, are trying to get to. That thing that is there's something there. Something happened. And over the course of time, through the millennia, the memory is still there. He calls it with amnesia that there, you know, and we do. We there much, much, much of that has been forgotten. It's passed down through legend and folklore and what we call myth. But like when you take when you take the flood, okay? Um, you know, they call it the flood myth, but like nearly every culture in the world has a flood story. So if almost everybody's talking about it, it must be true. Yes, they have their own, you know little legend or story that goes along with it. But the nugget of truth there is that there was a flood and some people, not very many, survived to restart civilization. And guess what? Anything, most anything that they knew before that was wiped out and, and having to restart civilization. I mean, when we talk about like, you know, getting hit with an EMP or something like that right now, it's like, oh, yeah, we'd get thrown back into the Stone Age. Well, yeah, that's basically, you know, you had people that were, you know, a little bit more elevated than the Stone Age. You know, they had some sort of civilization going on, get basically thrust back into it. So, okay, I kind of uh, got on my soapbox there a little bit. Let's see, Sarah, it could be that there's information passing through electrical impulses that are passed down through the parental uh, gametes or if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, yeah, I mean, when we're talking about uh, DNA and that sort of thing, I mean, it is, it's, it's basically the encoding uh, within that DNA strand. But there are things that tell it to turn it off and turn it on, which is what we're going to get into. It's kind of where I'm getting to with all of this. So uh, in another class, we did talk about very briefly, um, and this was in the DNA class, uh, teleport, teleportation of DNA, the DNA into water test. So this was a test that was uh, introduced by Nobel laureate Luc Montaigne. Montaigne I can't speak French. Montaigne? In 2009. I apologize. My, I, have, I have zero French in my background. Um, so... This was a claim that DNA produces electromagnetic signals that are measurable when highly diluted in water. So the signal can allegedly be recorded, transmitted electronically, and re-emitted on another distant pure water sample where, where DNA can replicate despite the absence of the original DNA in the water sample. It goes through a little bit here on, uh, on the process it's very specific and technical, so I'm not going to do that right now. But basically, the idea is that by recording DNA and transmitting a signal with that DNA code into a vial of water, 
but did not have that DNA, it was actually able to create or duplicate that DNA within that vial of water. So evidence that you can transmit DNA and it actually be received somewhere, that you could get that encoding through an electrical transmission, which is absolutely fascinating and kind of scary at the same time because if somebody's just slinging around broadcasts of DNA, um, what what could they possibly do there? How could they? How could they? You know, yeah, you never know. They might mess you up somehow. Um, because you know, considering that you know our bodies are about what 85, 90 percent water, and they did this in a water test. If they're shooting a DNA signal uh, at you, could they manipulate your DNA? That's a scary thought for me. On it, could they manipulate your DNA by doing this? You know, but just the fact that they were able to transmit it and it being received within that water and all of a sudden it's duplicated that is very very interesting so 90 about 98.5 percent of dna uh is non-coding or what has been considered junk dna so all the information that we talk that we've been talking about when it comes to dna uh things that you inherit from your grandparents etc cetera, etc cetera, um isn't that like 1.5 percent kind of like all the what they consider important stuff when they do, um, you know, like gene splicing and things like that. It's in within that 1.5% where they, uh, like, have you heard the one about the, um, no, it's, this isn't a joke. Uh, have you heard the one about, um, with a certain type of goat that produces milk, they have given it some, spider DNA so that within the milk, and this sounds crazy, within the milk is actually some silk so that they're able to, on a more mass production basis, get silk. Bizarre, but they're able to do that. But the other 1.5% of DNA is considered quote unquote, junk DNA, or had been, at least for a while. And so it, it makes no sense that, you know, your body would contain 90, 98.5% of something that we don't need at all. That makes zero sense whatsoever. So I've always thought that we just don't know yet is what it comes down to. The other 98.5% of DNA, we just don't know yet. And there are some scientists that are coming along now and saying, you're right. There is more to this. And so, um, and I just found this article tonight. Uh, and I, this is from uh, Medline Plus, And I'll have to uh, post the article to you guys because this is very interesting. Uh, it says, however, it's becoming clear that at least some of it's in integral to the function of cells, particularly the control of gene activity. For example, non-coding DNA, or what they consider junk DNA, considers sequences that act as regulatory elements determining when and where genes are turned on and off. And when I read that, it was like light bulbs went off. Like, wait a second. Turning genes on and off through this, what we've been calling junk DNA, okay? Now, we've been talking 
a good chunk of this evening about simulation, quote unquote, the matrix, this sort of thing. Okay. So what is the very base of computer code? Ones and zeros. One, and here's where my degree in simulation programming comes in handy. Ones represents an on state. Zeros represent an off state. And that's what these guys, these scientists are saying that some of this junk DNA is being used for to regulate the on and off state of genes. So this is our binary code, okay? Uh, if we take a look at a, a you know a, a table of binary, just to give you a quick example, I don't want to go over your heads too much here with a bunch of techno mumbo jumbo, but this is this is just uh, simple eight bit characters. You know you that you've heard the term like eight, sixteen, thirty two bit, that sort of thing. Well, that's what this is. It's you, know, you look at the letter A here, you see you know a bunch of zeros and a couple of ones in there. There's eight characters in there. That's where eight bit comes into play. But again, the one represents an on state, the zero represents an off state, and the computer translate that uh, to become an A, a B, a C, whatever. Okay. So, you know, I'm reading this and I'm like, okay, so within our DNA, there is something that is turning things on and off within the junk DNA. This is Again, I don't want to say it is a computer because, again, it, this would be something you know, obviously organic because uh, it, we're talking about our bodies here. But um, while you have, let's put it this way, you have 1.5% of your DNA that, con that contains the program. And I know that sounds like a small amount. Um, but they've been able to show that with a strand of DNA, they could actually store like terabytes of information. Um, so, so it would actually be a large amount. So just think, you know, 1.5% contains the, the program, kind of like the base information and the rest of the DNA, or at least part of that 98.5% is the instruction set that's telling the program what to do and where to turn things on and off. So uh, this could be why different family traits skip generation to generation, you know, like, um, you know, okay, it could be like a psychic medium thing, but it could also be like um, twins, you know, okay, sometimes, uh, you know, the, the, along the family line, you have twins, but it skips a generation and then somewhere, somebody in that next generation has twins or you know, has red hair or whatever it is. Um, it could be something within that quote unquote junk DNA. That's, that is the instruction set that says, okay, turn this on, turn this off for that particular trait. I'm going to throw up this piece of pseudocode. I, I did this in the, in the, um, in the simulation, the simulated universe class from over a year ago. Um, don't don't have your eyes glaze over too much. The the idea here is that we're we're uh, randomizing the color of woolly mammoth hair, and I've thrown down three examples: red, brown, green. So it's uh, take a random number one through ten. That's what the next one comma ten is. 
Um, and whatever that random number is, like if it's a one, it's red hair. If it comes up as a two, it's brown hair. Three is off-white, sort of light brownish. <laughs> so let's just say that through our random number generation, think of just like rolling a 10-sided die and boom, it comes up a two. Okay, that means it's brown. So brown would then become an on state or a one. All the others, red, et cetera, would then become a zero state. So you could think of you could think of it as almost rolling a die, you know, if it was to be random, there might be some more intelligence behind it. And then whatever comes up, that becomes the one and then all the others become zero. Okay. Um, this actually adheres to ones and zeros on and off. We've been talking about this quite a bit here lately over the past year too. the idea of duality. Okay, with duality, you, you have two sides, right? So as above, so below. You know, you could look at as above as one and as below or so below as zero. You know, the yin and the yang. You know, you could look at one is one of those is one, the other one as zero. We've also been talking about a parallel universe running in reverse. Okay, that was information that came out of the Anita project down in Antarctica, uh, the Anita project and the Ice Cube project, a parallel universe running in reverse. So in this case, we're not talking about universes with that from science coming across as, you know, one or the other, ours and then another. We, we talked about that um, in the mirror universe uh, class. And then running in reverse, okay, we're running forward, the other is running backwards. So the idea of duality there, ones and zeros, you know, and, you know, we're actually getting this now out of our DNA. Um, I dug up this question from last year's class on simulated universe. This was actually from Tom McNicholas. He said, my biggest question is who is controlling my simulation? If it's a computer knowing it runs on zeros and ones, do zeros control negative energy and one's positive energy? Would our minds control how the numbers play out? So, yeah, we need to get into that aspect of all this as well. You know, if our, uh, you know, if our body is the receptor of all this, like we talked about at the very beginning, then where is the consciousness coming from? You know, what, you know, if, if that signal's coming in. So the idea here is basically that the signal's coming in from wherever it is out there to us. And the ones and zeros are being changed within us by that signal. We just showed that DNA could be sent electronically through water. Bodies are made of mostly water. And we've already been talking about our consciousness being you know, sent from elsewhere to us and we're just the receptor. So that signal telling our bodies what the different ones and zeros are. So I see some questions and comments down in here. Um, <laughs> uh, let's see. And, and yeah, Sarah, exactly. Junk DNA is a misnomer just because we don't know what to do with it. Yeah, yeah. And that's exactly true. Um, they just don't know what it is yet. But it's nice to see that 
some scientists have made headway here and at least saying not necessarily all 98.5% of it, but at least some of that is a function to turn things on and off. Um, and Tom, yeah, our life is like an RPG program. Uh, yeah, it, it in many ways it is. And we've talked about that before uh, in like the simulated universe class where, you know, it's like going into you know some sort of game RPG role playing game into some sort of game and act and, and playing it out. And Sarah asks, does that mean there is a duality to resonance? And basically, the yeah, <laughs> I could just say yes and leave it at that. Um, but it's kind of that whole the the equation needs to to even out, you know, um, when we look at the Matrix movie, you know, the, the what they end up theorizing through that was Neo um, was the result of the equation trying to balance itself out. So he was kind of like the remainder. And, and that was one way to, to portray that. Um, but yeah, it, there's, you know, two sides to every coin sort of thing. So, uh, so yeah, with, there's going to be a light, there's going to be a dark as above, so below. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the way our universe is constructed. There's this dualistic nature about it. So, all right. Um, so where is the consciousness coming from? We have about 15 minutes to dive into, to this part of it. So we did talk before. Uh, earlier this year about some articles that had been coming out um, talking about microtubules. Yes, we're going we're to mention that briefly. But basically, this is what kind of caught everybody's eye. Researchers suggest the human soul doesn't die. It returns to the universe, which is really quite significant because um, different world religions, cultures, belief systems have been talking about this sort of thing for thousands and thousands of years. And science uh, has been telling us for a long time that you know we just become worm food. But now we have some researchers and scientists saying, well, no, actually, um, the soul doesn't die. It does return to the universe. And so it gets kind of wordy here with some of these different you know, discovery of quantum vibrations and microtubules inside brain neurons supports controversial theory of consciousness. Very wordy, I know. Um, but basically, according to these two leading scientists, Stuart Hameroff and Sir Roger Penrose, the human brain is a biological computer and human consciousness is just a software program activated by the bio-quantum computer inside the brain. So yes, we're going back to, that's that's really like our analogy for it right now is computer. I'm sure, again, 100, 200 years from now, we're going to come up with some other term or idea for it. Furthermore, it continues to exist even after death. Researchers say that after people die, the soul returns to the cosmos. It does not actually die. So this article here was an update in 2014 of controversial 20-year-old theory of consciousness published in Physics of Life Reviews that claims that consciousness derives from a deeper level, a finer scale of activities. Um, and so 
with these microtubules and quantum vibrations. They're basically telling us, just kind of repeating myself here, that um, you know the consciousness, they, they, they don't know where. They don't know where. They say it goes off to the cosmos. Okay, well, you know, you had ancient Egypt. I mean, this is this is stuff that we, uh, thousands and thousands of years. Ancient Egypt, what did they tell us? After the body dies, the soul goes off to the constellation of Orion. Okay, that's going off to the cosmos. So they already knew. They just got a little more specific. Um, because it was part of religion, and of course it gets, you know, you get mythology and, and things like this thrown into the mix um, when, when people look back on it, when our um, more learned scientists look back on it now, they say, well, that was just myth and story and legend. Well, was it really if, uh, okay, you know, we're talking about the Ba birds. Well, the, the birds were just a representation of the soul. The important part of it was the birds. It was the soul. It was the consciousness that they were talking about going off to uh, the, the constellation of Orion, the going off into the cosmos. So they already knew that. So what does returning to the cosmos mean? I'll go back to Greg Braden here real quick and some more quotes that, uh, that I had included in A Walk in the Shadows. And we're talking about simulations again. He says, the characteristics of a simulated world the simulation has a place where it begins, a definite beginning, and it has a place where it ends. And what happens in between that beginning and the ending is based on a mathematic algorithm, a rhythm of cycles and patterns that repeat again and again and again on different scales. In the simulation, there are rules that govern the simulation. And the idea is that as the people in the simulation become more familiar with the environment, as they learn those rules, life gets better. They improve with practice. In the simulation, users always have access to an external reality that they can tap into for guidance if they get into trouble or if they need clarification. They always have the ability to communicate beyond the simulation itself. And in the simulation, the user cannot tell the simulation from the real world. Okay. So when he's talking about asking for guidance. Okay. I find that really, really interesting. I mean, you kind of laid out, okay, more of this is how a simulation works. This is how our world works. Yes. You know, for, you know, we're coming for consciousness coming from an external world into here. We can't tell. And when we did our class on AI, I showed you guys um, some video clips of myself in a VR world and it looks totally Real. I mean, okay, sure, there's like a cartoony type visage at this point in the game with that. But you really feel like you're walking around in there. Um, you know, it has boundaries set up that so you don't walk into the wall in your house. It'll let you know you're getting too close to here. But when you're within that space, it totally feels real. Um, I was and I was just telling Jen about this uh, the other the other day. Um, I was playing uh, Vader Immortal. And, uh, you know, so there's Darth Vader and looking up at him like this, this dude's big, um, which was awesome. But what was really even trippier was there are some points where you have to like climb up ladders and stuff. And as you're climbing, you're like getting the feel. I mean, you're still standing on the floor in your house, right? Um, 
but you're really getting the feel of you're going up this ladder and as I'm trying to get off the ladder, you know, that's a long drop down and you get your, your eyes see it. And so your brain is interpreting, I'm, I'm on the ledge here. I don't want to fall. You know, so you start to feel a little, you know, uh, like I, I could fall off the ladder sort of thing, even though you're standing in the, in the room of your house. Um, it's really wild. So, so that's, the simulation part of it, but the idea that, okay, if I was having a problem with the game, I could reach out for customer service, right? Okay, there's an issue here. Um, you know, I need some help. In online uh, role-playing games, like massively multiplayer online games, um, you can hit the the slash on your, your keyboard and depending on the game you could type, you know, help or whatever. Um, in, in some cases, they respond right away and boom, all of a sudden a game master shows up right there in the game beside you and like, okay, we're going to help you with. Um, and so that would be your, you know, your guidance. Okay, so let's bring that into you know, our world here, you know, outside of a, you know, video game. How does that work in our world here? Well, okay. How many times do people in this world ask for guidance? You know, we're talking... Yeah, we're talking prayer. You know, we're talking um, people trying to reach out to their spirit guides, whatever their belief system, you know, whether it's, um, you know, God or Allah or, you know, um, uh, or some shamanistic practices to, you know, tune into Mother Earth or whatever it is. Um, you know, people reach out for guidance from beyond this world all the time. You know, they're basically reaching out above, this is a simulation, they're reaching out above the simulation to where it is we originally come from for that, for that help, for that guidance. So we have talked, um, we've got about five or six minutes here. We have talked, of course, a bit about reincarnation. Um, you know, the idea, okay, so we're, we're here on earth. You know, we run through our life. Hopefully we learn something. We go back to whatever that home world is. And that's that's what I always refer to. It. People refer to it as heaven. Some people refer to it as Summerland, whatever, whatever it is. It is a world beyond our own from which we originally come. And then whatever the rules of that system are, we eventually come back. So... I mean, that's, that's my belief. I believe in, I do believe in reincarnation, but even for those that don't, for those that don't, that at least believe in, we go someplace else. Cause there are people that do believe that we just become worm food. Okay. We're not talking about those people. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but there are plenty of people that believe that, you know, we come down here, we live one life and then we go off somewhere else. And some of, some people are very, you know, it's heaven or hell. Okay, fine. Even if it's heaven or hell, we're still down here running through, we'll call it a test, okay? Is that is that what it is? You know, based on how well you do in this life, then you go one place or the other? Okay, fine. Guess what? That's still a simulation. You still, you could, <laughs> I'm not going to get biblical, but you can find scripture, you know, because it's really, uh, I grew up Catholic, sorry, but, um, you know, it's that kind of line that says, okay, you know, 
God knew you before the womb. You came down here. Okay, you run through your life, and then you're judged on what you did in this life. You go one place or the other. But that still falls within the idea of a simulation. You know, I went a lot on, on simulation theory here. Um, so if a solar consciousness is just energy or light or transmission from elsewhere, how is it connected to the rest of the universe? Well, we talked about the idea of, you know, coming here, going back, coming here, going back. That's one way of interacting with the universe, of course. We have other ways of interacting with it, uh, such as astral projection. Uh, you know, we can disconnect from our physical body. People talk about a silver cord that keeps us connected to the physical body while we go and we travel about uh, so that we don't lose where it's at. But there is that idea, uh, and some people are uh, you know, apparently very skilled practitioners, of being able to uh, leave the body and, and travel elsewhere and see other things. So taking the consciousness to other locations, whether that's to visit somebody. People have talked about going and visiting other planets. Um, I've had, when it comes to like all the shadow people stuff, I've had people tell me that when they're on that astral plane, they do see, uh, they do see other shadowy bodies and entities. Some people have, have talked about, um, or have told me about how on their way back to the body, that there was a shadowy person in the room and they thought, well, if I don't hurry up and get back into the body, then, uh, the shadow person may jump in there. In those cases, I really think that those type of entities were either other travelers along the astral plane or may have even been the person's guides that um, they're just kind of looking around, maybe even less, you know, watching and keeping guard over the body while, while they're traveling. I, I don't necessarily think that they were up to, up to no good or anything like that. Um, of course, we have the collective unconscious which, uh, I mean, you guys have heard my, my uh, Sylvester Stallone Rocky story for a while now. But basically, you know, the idea that, um, that there's all this information that is essentially floating around the, the cosmos that you can pick up on from, from time to time. Like people talk about having a Eureka moment or, um, you know, they, they contemplate something for a while and say, oh, boom, it pops in their head. Or sometimes they over-contemplate too much and they have to go do something for a little while and then all of a sudden, boom, it pops in their head. Um, you know, it's, you know, Einstein talked about his thought experiments. Um, others talk about, um, you know, I have no idea where the idea came from. It just popped in my head one day. You know, where, where does that sort of thing come from? Uh, we've seen in our history, multiple people, uh, you know, working on the same idea or invention at the same time. They didn't have any contact with each other. And then all of a sudden you have like four or five people that are suddenly in a race to become the first one to produce it because all of a sudden at the same time, they're all trying to in invent the same thing. And, and they realize, well, this guy over here and that guy over there, damn, they're trying to do the same thing. And then it becomes this race. Uh, so it's really interesting, you know, what happened that they were able to uh, pick up on that information. So is there something going on as that signal is being transmitted to us? Now, if we're talking about there's all this information around the cosmos, as it's being transmitted, does it pick up some of this data along the way? You know, kind of almost like a, you know, uh, maybe a, 
uh, you know, like a hitchhiker signal. Oh, you're, you know, transmitting. Oh, hey, just it passed right through this piece of information. Let me grab it and bring it on down. Is, is that is that what's going on? Um, in other cases, um, you know, if you like with me with my with my story, um, you know, how I picked up on that particular storyline. You know, was it because I was so fascinated or whatever by that or you know it kind of it kind of really go back to the heart it really hit me in the heart uh with that series and so there's something about you know my signal reach out and latch onto that and grab it back down we don't know how that works um but but there is something to that that energy transfer and then uh lastly we don't have a lot of time for this at all uh but we have we have talked about this before uh, so the earth having a consciousness. And um, so this was another one that came out uh, here recently. Astrobiologists suggest the earth itself may be an intelligent entity. The, the actual idea that the earth itself has a consciousness. And so new Avatar movie out. So you can uh, relate that to, uh, to Pandora, I guess. Um, but this is an idea, again, that the ancients have talked about for thousands and thousands of years that our scientists are just now, oh, yeah, yeah, the earth may have a consciousness. We've been talking about this a long time. You guys are you're, you guys are slow in the uptake, but you know they want to be able to prove it scientifically. Okay, so I'm not going to read the uh, the whole thing right now because we really are about out of time. But um, you know, how do we as humans, if if we are living on this planet and we have our own conscious our own consciousness, is, <laughs> is that how you say it? consciousnesses? Uh, yeah, that are walking around on this planet okay there's there's the planet as a brain right um you know how is our consciousness communicating with this environment that we are living on that has its own consciousness itself and you know this is where you know the the world the planet itself weeps that we've done so many things to harm this planet um, you know, that, you know, many people talk about being able to feel the pain of the planet. And, and I do believe that they can, um, you know, people even talk about like trees, you know, having, you know, some sort of consciousness about them. Of course, we've seen, uh, things react to music and things like that. Is that just, you know, the, the wavelengths or is there an actual, you know, some sort of consciousness that's attached to that? Well, I think the ancients had some sort of grasp on that idea of being able to you know communicate with with the earth of course they were a lot closer to it and closer i mean they were you know outside all the time um you know we we stay indoors a lot um you know they were uh i don't you you can even say okay many of them ran around barefoot outside so that they were actually touching the ground all the time and even if they weren't like you know thin sandal or whatever they're still closer to the ground they're still working with it all the time and they're doing things like this where they're creating stone circles to tap into that earth energy and to be able to commune with the planet to be able to commune with the cosmos um to be able to commune with you know the consciousness of the universe and so yeah it's all it's all connected you know our consciousness to the cosmos, our consciousness to the earth, you know, and to everybody around us. So 
Let me see what your final comments are here. I was trying to, I didn't mean to ignore there toward the end, but I was trying to get some of that information in. Um, Tom saying that's why some people don't like cremation. The DNA is destroyed. Yeah, there's um, there's some interesting debate on on uh, pro or against cremation. Uh, Sarah saying we live in a sea of energy. It seems to just lose our individualization when we die. Um, and this is interesting. Jen is saying uh, transcendental meditation is totally against the projection. We'll have to talk a little bit about that. Um, all right. So there we go. Um, that is it for this evening. Uh, we will be back, of course, next week, 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern time. Um, we'll go next week and the week after, and then we are we're done for the rest of the year after that. So, all right, everybody, have a good night. Till next time. If time really exists. <laughs>